suffering will be felt and known by everyone. But suffering is a guest welcomed and enjoyed by no one. If you don't know what suffering feels like, you're either too numb to the pain around you in the world, or you're just too young to understand. But if you live long enough, the days of darkness will come. As Ecclesiastes 11 verse 8 says, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. You know, suffering can come in all types, shapes, and sizes, can't it? There's financial suffering, emotional suffering, physical suffering. Indeed, there's suffering that both Christians and non-Christians experience alike. Some suffering can be predicted. And then there's some suffering that can catch us way off guard. We didn't even see it coming. There's famines, catastrophic weather, and economic crises, causing resources and supplies to be scarce, severe injuries and sicknesses, sidelining Christians from service, and others from their normal routines of life and work. And then there's death, the ultimate climax of all suffering, where loved ones are left behind, wondering how they will face their new normal, fighting for hope in this next chapter of their life, while also learning to grieve with the absence of someone they loved. I can remember pastoring my first church. It's a small church. Got a call around 5.30 in the morning from the poorest man in our church. His name was Dewey, and he was married to a woman named Mary. Dewey had informed me at 5.30 that his wife had died right next to him in her sleep. I was a brand-new pastor, 27 years old. Jansen, is that your age? Yeah, 27? Hey. I was the classic definition of what it means to be green behind the ears. No pastor prepared me for this in my sixth month of ministry. I found myself standing in front of this broken down trailer, rain pouring down, holding this grown man, grieving on my shoulder, watching him sob as he watched his wife carried out in a body bag into a hearse. That's why some of the most difficult forms of suffering that we face in this life are with relationships. You see, the suffering of death can end one and leave a hole in our hearts that never seems to get filled the rest of our life. But suffering can also put a tug-of-war strain on our relationships, leaving us weary and downcast. In fact, some relationships can get ripped all the way apart 
when suffering is a result of unrepentant and heinous sin, where the deceitful schemes of the devil seem to prevail. That's why churches can experience suffering as well. You see, the local church is God's plan for seeing the gospel reach the ends of the earth. And if the local church is God's primary vehicle to reach the nations with the gospel, then you best believe it, brothers and sisters, that the kingdom of darkness will be most fierce against the doors of Christ's church. And I'm speaking about the local church, a church just like this one. You see, the local church is God's messy and imperfect but primary messenger for his gospel to go forth. The local church is where sinners who are redeemed by the blood of Christ are set apart and sent out with the aim of seeing the knowledge of God and his glory spread all over the earth. That means this, from the members of the church to the ministers who shepherd them, from the children ministry workers to the church's missionaries sent out amongst the unreached. Suffering for Christ will come to any believer who is waging war against the spiritual forces of evil. Read Ephesians chapter 6 sometimes. In other words, if you're going to follow Jesus, and I mean really following, faithfully, boldly, publicly, eventually suffering for Christ will follow you. Let me say that again. If you choose to follow Jesus, as Jesus has taught taught us in the scriptures, boldly and publicly, eventually suffering for Christ will follow you. You see, those who are most focused, they've got tunnel vision on the kingdom of heaven. They're most focused on seeing the gospel go forth, Christ's church built up. Eventually, they will face the assaults and attacks from those who oppose Christ and himself. You see, the New Testament is littered all over the place with examples of Christians, just like you and me, experiencing all types of suffering especially suffering that comes because you're obedient to Jesus. Take, for example, persecution. The unregenerate, those who don't know God, they don't possess his spirit, force believers to evacuate their homes and flee to new towns and cities, even new countries. Sometimes the persecution is so fierce that governments and civil authorities throw Christians into jail for their faith in Jesus. And some Christians, depending on where they're at in the world, are even martyred for being unashamed of the gospel. But even inside the church, one of the forms of suffering that can take place can be the result of false teachers or unconverted church leaders who are misleading Christ's sheep. They're deceiving them. They're giving them half-truths, kind of a bait-and-switch theology. On the outside, they have religious charm. 
But on the inside, their consciences are calloused. And then there's unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin can bring about suffering in the church as well. Slander, divisions, pride and selfish ambition. You see, when these devilish eggs hatch in the life of a church and unrepentant sin grows commonplace, churches can be split right down the middle. Remember Paul's words to the Galatians? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Galatians 5, verse 9. And if faithful believers stand boldly for the truth, then the father of lies will be working overtime to frustrate them, even to try to destroy them. You see, from the inside of our hearts, to the inside of our homes, to the inside of our hospitals, to the inside of our churches, suffering surrounds the human experience like fish does water. You see, in Scripture, sometimes the writers of the New Testament use the word suffering or tribulation, depending on your translation. And really, that word just simply means a hardship or a season of life that presses down on us, like someone smashing grapes on a table. A tribulation is pressure that might come from the outside that afflicts us but can also be a pressure on the inside that burdens us. A pressure that can squeeze us to the point of wanting to give up on doing what's right. Sometimes even give up to the point of giving up on life itself. Have you ever been to the point that you despaired of life itself? Have you ever been through such a deep experience of suffering that you weren't sure if it was worth it to follow Jesus anymore? What if I told you that Christians who've been greatly used of God have felt that way before? If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. One, if you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 561, 561, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. As you're turning there, I'll give you a little background on where we're at in this letter. The author, the Apostle Paul, you can see that right there in chapter 1, verse 1, writes this letter, 2 Corinthians, to a local church that was located in Corinth, which was a major trade city located in southern Greece. Apart from its prosperous economy, uh, what characterized the people of Corinth was kind of like Las Vegas in the first century. They were known for their moral depravity and their spiritual darkness. And it was in this type of city, beloved, this type of city, that God in his providence had sent Paul on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 18. What happens? Well, God does the humanly impossible. A local church is planted in Corinth by the Apostle Paul, and then God begins to bless Paul's efforts to see this church grow up. 
And in our New Testament, we have two letters that Paul wrote to this church, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Now, 1st Corinthians uh, is a letter that Paul primarily writes uh, with pastoral care and correction in matters of doctrine and godly living. But in 2nd Corinthians, Paul writes with the primary aim of defending his God-given ministry, his God-given apostleship. If you look right there in the very first verse, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 1, you'll notice how Paul begins this letter to show ultimately where his ministry came from. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other words, Paul wasn't mama called. He didn't go to seminary because he had nothing else to do with his life. He was not a self-taught man, but he was a God-ordained man for this task. Throughout this letter, Paul repeatedly defends his apostolic credentials as he was slandered by phony and false teachers. Uh, These false teachers, if you read this letter, touted themselves in all sorts of pride and arrogant ways, but Paul saw right through them. They wanted to run Paul out of town ruin his reputation, rid him of any influence that he had among the churches, even the church of Corinth, the very church he planted with his own hands. But in 2 Corinthians, it becomes clear how Paul also sets for us an example of what it looks like to be a Christian who receives God's comfort in the midst of suffering by going through the fires and pressures of suffering, God would use his suffering along with his team, Timothy and Silas being a few of them, as a source of encouragement to believers who were suffering in Corinth. You see, after a few years, by the time Paul writes 2 Corinthians, these false teachers had crept into the church. They got a seat at the table They were able to get some forms of leadership amongst Christ's sheep. Paul actually identifies them in chapter 11 of this letter as deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. But Paul says they were actually servants of Satan. You can read about that in chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. A little summary for you about what these false teachers tried to do to Paul. They tried to undermine Paul's teaching by spreading false teaching. They had been misrepresenting Paul by telling the Corinthians that Paul was in ministry for all the wrong reasons. He was in it for the money. He was in it to fleece the sheep. And ultimately, they acted with malicious slander and hatred towards Paul, which caused Paul to experience all sorts of suffering. In fact, I don't know if you're familiar with 2 Corinthians, This letter alone contains more references to Paul's suffering than any other letter in the New Testament. Here's a sampling of what Paul had experienced for the sake of Christ and his love for the churches. In 2 Corinthians 1, he mentions afflictions and suffering multiple times, which we'll look at this morning. In chapter 2, he speaks of ministering to them with a painful visit and that he had written them out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. 
in chapter 4, which we looked at briefly last week on our topic of spiritual depression and other forms. He speaks of being perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and his outer self, his body, as wasting away. If you would, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is not on the screen, but I want you to see this in your own Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In this section, we'll see an extended summary of what Paul and his team had suffered as a result of being faithful to Christ. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 3 to 10. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand, and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying. And behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here in this section, Paul then basically does this. Wake up, Corinthians. Wake up. These false teachers are selling you a bill of goods. They boast in things that don't matter. They boast about themselves. They compare themselves by themselves, but they do not compare themselves to Jesus. And Paul then says, you're listening to these false teachers who boast in themselves? Well, can you just entertain me for a little bit and let me boast in myself? But you know what's interesting? Paul boasts, but he doesn't boast in his ministry successes. He doesn't boast in how gifted or talented he is or how much money he got from other churches. No, the spiritual resume that Paul pulled out of his briefcase doesn't demonstrate his own strength, but rather God's strength through his sufferings. Surprisingly, He stands toe-to-toe with all his naysayers and says, look how much I've suffered for Christ. Look with me now in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 22 to 29. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Ah, 
I am talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in colder and exposure and apart from other things there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak and I am not weak who is made to fall and I am not indignant love it apart from Jesus Christ himself and maybe Job in the Old Testament I'm not sure we have anyone else in Scripture that suffered the breadth and depth that Paul suffered in his following of Jesus. And yet, the same man who says all these things speaks just as frequently about comfort and faith, hope and joy with the power of God in the midst of his suffering. So how would God Use Paul's suffering for good in his life. What purposes does God use suffering in your life? Please turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And follow with me in verses 3 to 11 as we'll study this passage together on God's purposes in our suffering and how God uses it all for multiplying his comforts. 2 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 3. This is God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. 
Here's the main point of this morning's passage or message. When Christians suffer, God provides sufficient comfort, faith, and hope in their time of need. When Christians suffer, God provides sufficient comfort, faith, and hope in their time of need. So first, when Christians suffer, God provides sufficient comfort. Well, that really begs the question, how does he do it? How does God provide sufficient comfort for Christians who suffer? Well, in verses 3 to 7, Paul mentions two ways we experience God's comfort even when we suffer. The first way we receive God's comfort is when we, number one, trust in God's character. We trust in God's character. Look again in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Paul begins the longest letter of defending his apostolic ministry and where he shows you his resume of all his suffering. And he begins the letter by praising God for who he is. He begins a whole section on suffering and afflictions by praising God for who he is and what he has done for us ultimately through Jesus Christ our Lord. He begins his opening address with the word blessed. In other words, he begins blessing God or praising God. That just means to exalt in God, to adore him, to speak highly of God, to magnify God. Kids, have you ever been to a really fun theme park, maybe Six Flags? Or maybe I hear there's something in Branson? Or Locomotion near Fayetteville? Or maybe the little batting cage here in Fort Smith? Whatever floats your boat. You went on some of the best rides ever. It was crazy fun. You ate a turkey leg this size. And then you got back to school, and what did you do? You told all your friends how awesome the rides were, how awesome the vacation was. What are you doing? Well, you're expressing something that amazed you that you want other peoples to take part in. That's partly what we do at church on Sundays. Maybe you've ever wondered, why do we listen to Pastor Blake for an hour or sometimes longer? And why do we sing songs? And why do we pray? We do that because we're giving God praise and we want to tell others how great he really is. And brothers and sisters, that's what we're trying to do in our songs. That's what we're trying to do in some of our prayers. Whether it's me or another brother who is offering a prayer of praise, what we are doing is really modeling what Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in these moments when we extol who God is, we are drawing people's attention to some of the amazing attributes of God's very nature. We are boasting to one another. We are excited, not really about ourselves though. We want to get our eyes off ourselves and put our eyes on God. We want to praise God for his works in creation. Praise God for his works in salvation. And beloved, we have thousands of other ways that we can praise God for things he does in all our lives. Now, it's insightful to note 
that before Paul begins to talk about his own suffering and the Corinthian suffering, again, I want to make this point clear. He's praising God simply for who he is. Beloved, is that what your prayer life has sounded like lately? Before you make your needs known, before you've made your pain heard, do you find yourself offering words of praise to our God? I think Alan Williams does that amazing in his own personal prayer life. Every time I'm around him and we pray together, he always has something to praise God for in his life. And I hope to be more like that, Alan. Continue to be a good example of that, brother. Well, notice how he specifically praises God by mentioning three things about him. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, Paul's not breaking out a systematic theology. He's not trying to explain to us all the different attributes of God. But he does seem to use these three specifically, as a good pastor would, to draw Christians who've been hurting to something they need to know about their God. Let's think first for a moment where he says he's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus taught us to pray our father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Some of you here today maybe didn't grow up with a father or you grew up with a father that did not represent what our heavenly father truly shows what a father should be like. Beloved, even the best of fathers that any of us have ever had still pale in comparison to our Heavenly Father. If you have a hard time trusting those in authority, particularly men, I want you to know that you can trust our Heavenly Father. He is tender, He is compassionate, He is protective, and He loves. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, Maybe it's weird to you that you would call God your father. What I want to do for you this morning is challenge you to think about you did not create yourself. You did not just kind of poof out of nowhere. You were made ultimately by the God we've been speaking about, the God we've been praising this morning, the God spoken about here in 2 Corinthians, who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, one of the things that Christians and non-Christians alike can agree about is that life is full of pain, sorrow, disappointments, sickness, and death. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I agree with you. I agree with you that sometimes life stinks. It hurts. It feels like you get hit with a sledgehammer. And Christians don't deny that. True Christians who read their Bible do not deny that. We side with you. We sympathize with you in your uneasiness in this world. But we agree with you ultimately because we know where all suffering originally came from. We believe in what Romans 5 verse 12 says. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
Listen, if you're not a Christian here today, we are glad you are here. You are welcome here. I hope you feel loved. I hope you feel encouraged. I hope you get to know someone. But as Brother Allen opened up this gathering with us, we, we don't want you to continue living your life looking for comfort in all the wrong places, leaving yourself aimless and being disappointed with false comforts. If you want to know where you can find true comfort, you first have to understand what God says has ruined that comfort. You see, our greatest problem is that we have sinned against our God. The greatest discomfort we could ever experience is being separated from our holy God. You see, sin leaves us restless. It leaves us aimless. Sin leaves us condemned before our holy God. And when our consciences, when God lets us know in that kind of inner voice that says we're guilty, we're wrong, we're all tempted to try to soothe the pain with something. We're all tempted to try to escape, to remove that shame we feel. We try to go look for something to clean up the dirtiness that our consciences feel before God. But you see, Jesus warns us in the Gospel of John that there is a type of peace that the world offers, but it is a false and insufficient peace. It's a false comfort. It's a pillow that doesn't support your faith. And there is nothing that this world can offer you to give you lasting comfort here and the comfort you will need on the day of judgment. If that's you here today and you realize you need God's mercy, listen to Jesus' own invitation in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, God provides comfort for those who know him as Father and know his Son, Jesus, as their Savior and Lord. Friends, God's love and mercy is extended to you through the one and only gift that can bring us comfort. If you're here today and you recognize you're a sinner, come to Jesus. Come to Christ. Turn from your sins and trust in him. He died in your place. He rose again from the dead. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, commanding all of us to find rest and peace forever in him. Paul continues on in verse 3, describing God as the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Here, Paul unveils the curtain of more of the beauty of God's attributes. And Paul would have known these things about God because he studied the scriptures, the Torah, the law, and the prophets. But Paul also knew this from his own experience, from his own time of walking with the Lord. You see, Paul had known from ages past how God had been tender and compassionate towards his people, Israel. Paul knew very well of Exodus chapter 2, 
verses 23 to 25, which says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. In the book of Judges, chapter 2, Israel is in a roller coaster of spiritual ups and downs, and they faced the consequences. They had to answer to the decisions they had made, and they were brought into oppression from ungodly people. We read in Judges chapter 2, verse 18, For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. If you're a new Christian, or maybe you've been a Christian for quite some time, but you've realized, you know what, I haven't been growing that much. I haven't really matured and grown, or grown, not grown, grown in my love for the Lord in, in quite some time. And if you're learning how to pray for the first time, or you're someone who's discipling a young believer, I want to encourage you to begin reading the Psalms. The Psalms are a wonderful place to see God's compassion and care for those who cry out to him for help. Uh, listen to this promise from Psalm 34, verses 8 to 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. That's a good promise, beloved. Paul then describes God, did you notice, as the God of all comfort. Now, the word comfort here in the original language speaks less about God easing your pain, like giving you an ibuprofen for a headache, like taking the affliction out of your life. He can certainly do that. He can do it like that. But that's not the most common way he would use that in the scriptures. The word comfort here speaks more about encouragement. God giving us the strength or courage to face an adversity, not remove it from your life. It's like the picture of someone running a marathon and they're getting to that 20th mile. It's the picture of friends and family walking and running and jogging down the marathon road with them. They're cheering them on. They're giving them cups of water. And they're even holding you up so that you don't quit until the end. In fact, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, we read of a man named Barnabas that would eventually accompany Paul in his first missionary journey. And Barnabas was used as a wonderful brother, to help Paul early on in his ministry. Did you know that Barnabas was called by the early church the son of encouragement? The word there is the same word in St. Corinthians, a son of comfort, a son of encouragement. In other words, wherever Barnabas went, when he opened his mouth and when he loved Christians, people left encouraged. Uh, this word is also used in Romans 15, 4, where Paul tells Christians something about the Scriptures. He says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement or comfort of the Scriptures, we 
might have hope. And beloved, if you have been a Christian for some time, you know that we believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God's very presence living in our lives is called the helper or the comforter, John 14, 16. So when we hear in 2 Corinthians 1, when we read that God is the God of all comfort, Paul is basically saying that our God is unlike any other so-called gods of the universe. Our God is personal, our God is near, and our God comforts, he strengthens, and he encourages his children. Brothers and sisters, do you view God in that way when you are suffering? Out of all the things that come to your mind when you're hurting, when your body's hurting, or you get bad news dropped in your inbox, or on that text message, or another disappointment hits you in the face, along that process... In the top three things that come to your mind about the God we've been talking about today, is God a comforter to you? Do you believe that God is near and that his comfort is always extended to you? Let's just get honest. Suffering and all types of it can make you feel like you're driving down Rogers Avenue in a dense morning fog. You just can't see clearly. You're trying to enjoy that donut, that coffee, or whatever your wife made you. And wham, you hit the back of a car. And it spills all over you. And now you've got dirty pants, you're in a bad mood, you're in a wreck, and you didn't even see where you were going. Beloved, sometimes suffering feels just like that. It hits you head on, makes a mess in your life, and it can get really difficult to remember that God is always with us. That's why it's so important that we as Christians study the attributes of God. One of the greatest hours of idolatry in the American church is people worship a God they don't know. They worship a God that's not the God of the Bible. It's a God they've made with their own imagination, but not the God revealed in Isaiah's prophecy, in John's revelation, or Jesus the incarnate. We need to study the scriptures to know what our God is like. We need to know what his character is like. And beloved, this morning, if you're in a time of suffering, you need to know that our God is a God of comfort. If his spirit lives in you, listen, His comfort is always available to you. In times of suffering, beloved, ask the Lord. He loves these prayers to remind you of what he is like. He delights in doing that. The first way we receive God's comfort is by trusting his character. The second way we see in verses 4 to 7 is that we trust God's purposes. We trust in God's purposes. Paul says right here, starting in verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in the affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. 
and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. One of the most common and frequent questions that get asked during times of suffering is why? Why did this happen? Why did this happen now of all times? Why did this happen to me? What good can come out of this suffering? If you've ever asked those questions, I want you to know that is more natural than you might realize. All of us have probably asked that at one time or another. And I just want you to know that's okay. God's not intimidated by those questions. In fact, he's been hearing humans pray that and say that since the very beginning of creation. But Paul here seems to unveil the curtain again, at least on one of God's sovereign and mysterious purposes for believers when they suffer. He basically says this, as followers of Christ, when you and I suffer, we need to know that suffering is not an end in of itself. Suffering's not bigger than God. Suffering is a means. It's a tool by which God pours out his loving and sustaining comfort to us. But it's not just for us. It's also for those God will use us to minister to when they are suffering. I wonder how many of us can testify to this in our own life. I can almost guarantee that many of us have been greatly helped and encouraged when we hear a story about someone else's testimony in suffering and how God's grace sustained them, which in turn sustained you. I mean, there are stories in this room. I'm your pastor. I know them, or at least some of them. Some of you have faced that dark road of cancer, and you've walked patiently through it and have become a source of comfort and wisdom for those who are going through it today. Beloved, you are a hero in God's book because he is using you as a testimony of his grace to comfort others who are now walking through that same darkness. There are stories in this room of marriages that have almost fallen totally apart that God, by his grace, has restored and renewed. And beloved, if that's you here today, just know that God's already got a custom gift for you because he's going to put hurting couples in your path to minister to. You're going to be able to share encouragement and wisdom of what God taught you when things were rough years ago. Beloved, this is a part of God's discipleship plan. This is a part of God's comforting coalition. God comforts Christians by enabling them, by empowering them, by equipping them with the comfort he gives us so that we can comfort others in their suffering. Paul takes this truth in verse 4, and then he begins to expand our theology 
of God's comfort and purposes in our suffering. I just want you to note two observations about the depth and breadth of God's comfort. First, notice the breadth of God's comfort. The breadth of God's comfort. Look at verse 4. Paul says that God comforts us. I want you to say this out loud. In what? All. That's a good word to circle or underline if you're into doing that in your Bibles. God comforts us in all. Not some, not a few, not even most. All our affliction. And watch this. And in turn, Paul says that we are able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I do believe God uses professionally trained counselors and doctors to help diagnose certain issues people deal with. And I think he does use people who've been there, done that, got the t-shirt in the same type of suffering as you to bless you. But Paul here goes a step further here in verse 4. Paul goes on to expand our minds, stretch our faith to see that God can give any Christian, any man or woman, the comfort and encouragement and the help you need in order to comfort any Christian struggling in any type of suffering. Beloved, that's amazing. That's amazing. This should produce confidence in us when we feel totally inadequate to minister to others. I pray that CCBC would be a place full of members who are made sympathetic and competent counselors as you share with others how God has ministered to you. I also want you to notice the depth of God's comfort. He says in verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now Paul reveals to us that his suffering, at least here in verse 5, was a result of his love for Christ and his love for Christ's church. And what was the result? Paul experienced the same comfort from God that God the Father had comforted Jesus with in his suffering. As I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, Paul went through all sorts of trials and fires and pressures in his life as a minister of the gospel. So what is Paul saying when he speaks of sharing abundantly in Christ's suffering? Well, I do think there is a distinction between verses 4 and 5. It doesn't mean that Paul or anybody at CCBC is going to die on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. That's a finished work. That's a suffering that's unique and exclusive to Jesus. But here's what I think Paul means. Whenever you are following Jesus on the path of obedience and you experience suffering and affliction for doing what Jesus commands you to do, you are sharing in Christ's sufferings. You see, by faith, we are united with the death of Christ. By faith, we are united in the resurrection and the life of Christ. And that also means by faith, we are mysteriously but truly united in the sufferings of Christ as well. Paul said it like this to the Philippians in Philippians 1 verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 
Then again, he makes it crystal clear in Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Isn't that amazing? Because we are united to Christ, because we have the spirit of Christ living within us, when we are suffering for Christ, in a real sense, we are more like Jesus in our suffering in those moments than any of the world could have ever imagined. Even though people might not see the bodily, physical person of Jesus suffering now, when we suffer for Christ as his people, they get a glimpse of the suffering Christ in you. If we share in Christ's sufferings, we will also share in the comfort God gave Jesus in his suffering. Paul goes on in verses 6 to 7 and really just repeats himself on God's purpose in our affliction by explaining that God comforts us in order to comfort others in their affliction. But notice again, verse 6, he takes one step further. Listen to this. He says, it is for your comfort in salvation. Paul says that his suffering in Corinth, his suffering for the sake of Christ, the comfort by which he received from God in his suffering was being used of God for the salvation of the Corinthians. Paul's emotional pain, shipwreck, stoned, mocked, slandered, ran out of town, in part was for the Corinthians to see the power of the gospel in Paul's life. Paul's pain when he planted the church, as he pastored the church, would ultimately result in the Corinthians enduring in their faith until the end. Brothers and sisters, that's why your suffering and my surfing isn't meaningless. It might feel pointless in the moment. It might feel like Satan is winning for a season. It might even feel like no fruit is coming from your ministry labors. But if your eye is on God and you remain steadfast, his work in you and through you might be bringing hope and comfort to those who are watching you. I think this passage also shows us that we should share with others the sufferings we've experienced and what God has taught us through it. Beloved, you never know. You never have a clue who God's going to put in your path tomorrow, what God is teaching you today. Share your sufferings with others. Be vulnerable, get real, and boast in what God is doing through you because it might be the answer to someone's prayer by you coming into their life. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, I know very well in my work as a pastor that I would not have been able to sympathize with people. Indeed, I would not have been able to understand certain people and their problems unless I had passed through the same experience myself. God provides sufficient comfort, but he also provides sufficient faith. Look at number two. 
God provides sufficient faith in verses 8 and 9. Paul now gets very transparent with a particular experience he suffered while he was in Asia. Now, we're not exactly sure when and what. You can allude to passages like Acts 19, Acts 20, maybe even 1 Corinthians 16, but we're not exactly sure. Paul doesn't go into detail here. But listen to how he describes this particular affliction. He says, we were so utterly, verse 8, burdened beyond our strength. In other words, Paul says he was weighed down with such a burden that he was exhausted of all his physical and emotional strength. You ever had that moment where you just plop down on the floor? Yeah, nothing left to give, and it's like you're just going to pass out. You just can't go another day. He said in verse 8 that it had gotten so bad that he and his team, listen, despaired of life itself. In other words, God had pushed Paul and his team to such a limit that they thought they were staring at their death sentence. They thought this was it. Brothers and sisters, suffering is never a dead end to your faith. Suffering is an invitation to trust God. Suffering is not a dead end to your faith. Suffering is an invitation to trust God. I can't count how many times I've heard this as a Christian and as a pastor, that Christians grow closer when they go through a hard trial. How many of us, when we share our testimonies, when we talk about the biggest things God ever taught us, 95% of the time, it's when. It's when we're leaning It's when there's a boulder on our backs. It's when you're spent. It's when you're thinking, God's counting my number. I am done. I'm going to throw in the towel. It's just too hard. And I can tell you this, if you're walking with Jesus today, you will also testify that the sweetest times in his word is when you were most broken on your knees. When the pages of Scripture leaped off the page as if Jesus grabs you by the neck and says, trust me. See, suffering does that unlike any other thing in this life. Suffering does not end a Christian's faith. It is an invitation to see God work powerfully. Isn't that exactly what Brother Allen read from Psalm 119 earlier? Psalm 119, verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Who speaks like that? It's good for me that my life is hard. It's good for me that I get woken up at three in the morning. It's good for me that my body hurts and people don't like me. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. But why is that? It's a total contradiction. It's a total paradox to our natural inclination. I mean, have you ever stopped and thought about that? Why is it that we grow closer to the Lord when life is just so hard? I think Paul gives us the answer in his own experience. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Beloved, God uses trials of various kinds to break us down 
of our pride and to build up our faith in him. God uses trials of various kinds to break down our pride and to build up our faith in him. You know, I've, I've basically just given up on fighting this with the Lord. I have come to realize, as crystal clear as John 3.16, that trials come into our life, not necessarily because we've sinned, but trials come into our life to uproot hidden pride that we didn't know was buried deep down. Back when Julie and I and the kids lived in Savannah, Georgia, I remember there was a pond out front of our neighborhood and there was a really bad storm. And I've never seen this before since then, but I was in my truck pulling out of the front of the neighborhood and there were turtles everywhere. I mean, I thought my childhood teenage mutant into turtle dream came true. There's turtles everywhere, but get this, they're not walking. They're on their backs. And some of them were scared to death. And I rolled down my window. And I looked at those turtles. And I thought, how are you going to get back on your feet again? Well, I'm not a rocket scientist. I didn't do that good in biology. But that turtle probably is not going to get back on its feet unless I get out of my truck, pick him up, and put him back on the ground. Beloved, that is a good picture of what it means to be desperate for God. That is a good picture of real saving faith. We are most safe in our relationship with God when we are on our backs depending on him. You see, beloved, self-reliance is trying to do God's work with man's wisdom. Self-reliance is trying to gain God's results with man's strength. But God-reliance is believing that God will do what he says he will do and that nothing is impossible with him. That's why he says he believed in the God who raises the dead. Charles Hodge put it this way, No man, until he is tried, knows how essential the omnipotence of God is as a ground of confidence to his people. They are often placed in circumstances where nothing short of an almighty helper can give them peace. When Christians suffer, God provides sufficient faith in their time of need. But lastly, he also provides sufficient hope as well. Look with me in verses 10 and 11 at God provides sufficient hope. He says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Did you notice, if you've read this passage multiple times, Paul's tone seems to change between verses 8 and 9 and verse 10. I mean, he goes from, I thought we were going to die, to, I have hope. Three times he speaks of God delivering them in the past, in the present, and one day in the future. Paul is speaking about God's faithfulness to sustain and deliver him from trials in the past. And his confidence that God can do it again in the future. 
But Paul's just not talking about the future as if one hour from now or maybe next Thursday. I think Paul has the future day in mind of a final deliverance. What he refers to as a future hope, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. What hope is Paul ultimately talking about? What's that living hope that is offered to everyone who turn from their sins and trust in him. It's what Jansen read earlier in Romans 7. Who will deliver me from this body of sin? Jesus Christ. See, Paul is full of faith now. He is fully convinced that God can comfort him in his earthly sorrows because he has given us our greatest comfort and our greatest hope by trusting in the one who suffered for us. You see, God's Son came into this world, put on human flesh, and was obedient to God even to the point of death. The prophet Isaiah would describe him as a man of sorrows who died for the sins of his people so that we who deserve eternal suffering instead enjoy eternal peace. Read about what Christ suffered For us in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Even in the midst of suffering, Paul's heart was set on something more permanent and unchanging. His comfort, his faith, and his hope was anchored in the God, verse 9 says, who can raise the dead. You see, God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you're trusting in Christ today, one day you will be raised with him in glory. Beloved, God may deliver you from death. And God may deliver you through death and you gain him. For the Christian, God always delivers his people every time. Though Paul demonstrates a strong confidence in God, I think Paul models for us a humble servant who needed help. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. He says, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Consolation from God is rarely found in isolation from the prayers of God's people. Consolation from God is rarely found in isolation from the prayers of God's people. You see, Paul didn't just share his suffering and boast in his God. He said, I need your help. You want to help me, Corinthians? Pray for me. Pray for me. Beloved, I am convinced that God uses the prayers of his people more than the plans they often make in their life. 
I believe that heaven will one day be the wonderful testimony of faithful saints who believed God in prayer, and they realized that God's answer to those prayers were more fruitful than all the things we attempted for God. Beloved, never think for a moment your prayers are a waste of time. If someone's in a time of suffering, pray for them. When you are in a time of suffering, ask for prayer. Beloved, God answers prayer and uses prayer for the strength and comfort of his people. Now, you might be here today as we conclude this mini-series on suffering. The last three weeks have been heavy sermons on endurance, depression, and now even comfort and suffering. And you might be sitting here going, well, Pastor Blake, will God ever comfort me? Will God use my suffering for good in someone else's life? Will God ever deliver me from this trial? Take comfort from this word from Richard Sibbs. He can command his creation to save and the devil himself to be a means to save us. And if there is no means for you to see, he can create means to do it in an instant. Thus God is our help. And what a ground of comfort is this. Therefore I beseech you, do not be discouraged. Mourn we may like doves, but not like beasts in our afflictions. A Christian must look at the trouble with one eye and to God with the other. See God to be your salvation. Let the trouble be what it will if God is your deliverer. Look at your trouble with one eye and to God with the other. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are the God of all mercies and comfort. Lord, I pray that you would use this sermon today to that end, to comfort your people so that we might be used of you to comfort others in their time of need. Lord, we do pray that you would refine us, purify us, ultimately in such a way that brings you honor and glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.